Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this on Saturday, July 18th, 2020. Uh, We'll be posting this episode of Fine Tuning on Tuesday, July 21st, which is just one day after the 51st anniversary of man landing on the moon. And I bring this up because just in the the past week, Hollywood Reporter ran a piece about Apollo 10.5, a space age adventure, which is a new feature-length project that Richard Linklater is writing and directing and Netflix just picked up. And... You actually talked with Richard about this back in like 2018, right? Uh, I talked to him actually last summer because it was announced in 2018 that he was asking for people's footage. He actually Mm -hmm. wanted local Texans to share their footage of the Apollo launch, which is cool. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I imagine he was going to incorporate that into the film. And so last year when he was promoting a movie called Where'd You Go, Bernadette, which I think is on cable now. I asked him about it, and he said, oh, that's that's dead. He said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but what's interesting is he said, I got to make another crack at it. I got to mm-hmm. make another go at it. And apparently he did because it was announced this week that it's going to be animated, combining hand-drawn and computer animation, and it'll be on Netflix sometime mm-hmm. soon. They, they've, they shot some live-action portions in March. And, uh, yeah, where were you uh, when the space mission launched, Jim? I remember getting up and my parents were already up. They had been sitting there all night watching the moon landing, waiting for them to come down and get out and explore the moon. But yeah, it's kind of weird to watch it in real time on television because if you've ever seen any of the real footage from it, it's terrible. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Get it. Uh, I forgot who did the the amazing documentary with the color footage that was actually shot by the oh, astronauts. Yeah. And, yeah, that was oh, great. Yeah, it, it is such a contrast between, it was the equivalent of looking through a screen door. At, right. Know, is, is somebody is getting off of something. What am I looking at here? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty amazing they beamed it to Earth from the Oh, moon. yeah. No, no, no. Or no, depending on who you talk to, a, a soundstage somewhere in the valley. You know, either one, Jim, either one. We, you know, we don't want to propagate conspiracy theories, but, you know. How did Stanley Kubrick get those lenses for Barry Lyndon, Jim? That's all I'm going to ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you can open. Actually, speaking of uh, faked mood landing type stuff, I I remember vividly as a kid, and I want to say it's ABC that did this, Uh because again, they knew the footage was going to be so terrible. They hired professional marionettists, and oh, they God. they had you know just literally you know every so often they when the footage was really terrible they'd cut to these fake puppets of guys in spacesuits on a, a fake moon surface and it's like well the, the footage is poor but this is an approximation of what's going on the moon right now and it's like it, you know they're planting the flag and it was i don't want to say it was the people who did kukla fran and ollie but it was that level of puppeteering the bill baird type stuff that is like, really as, funny but that's again. That's one of my mem- my more vivid memories of the uh, the moon landing. Is like oh, also puppets on the moon. Hey, you know, you know, so it's like double, like double prizes. Wow. So, 
<laughs> All right. Anyway, we were talking about Netflix. And speaking of acquisitions, Cartoon Brew reported that Bombay Rose is going to Netflix next year. Uh, or excuse me, the, the fourth quarter of this year, right? Right. Yeah. And it is a sort of a one-man storytelling showcase because, all right, Gitanle Rao? Did, did, yeah, do that I? sounds good. Yeah. Okay. But he wrote, designed, and directed this animated feature. It sounds like maybe their I Lost My Body play for this year. Oh, okay. You know, All kind right. of a, the arty, you know, you, you're you're going to get the Over the Moon, which is the more commercial, and then this one will mm-hmm. be the, like, more arty. Kind of like Klaus and I Lost My Body <laughs> last year. You know, listening to you, it's, it's so hard to tell. You, you work out in L.A. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> I mean, this far out, you're already handicapping the, all right, so that, that this this will, this film will take that slot. This yeah, will yeah, take that you know, slot. It'll, it'll fit the yeah. niche. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, I'm excited. Yeah. It sounds great. Okay. I can't wait. Okay. And talking about Netflix, uh, Netflix has acquired the overseas rights to SpongeBob, Sponge on the Run. And I think we were talking on the last show how this Tim Hill film is now going to do premium video on demand on Viacom CBS, and then at some point show up on CBS All Access in 2021. Yeah, just put it out now. Jeez, don't you want to watch it, Jim? I want to watch it. I do, I do. I actually, you know, just I'm intrigued with how they've translated SpongeBob into CG. But speaking of let it out now, I mean, it was Tribeca, Back in 2018, right? That that's when Howard first debuted, right? Actually, can I just make an amendum there? It okay. actually debuted on some Disney cruises in 2017. Did it really? Yes. I mean, I think oh. that was an unfinished kind of like workshopped version, mm-hmm. but that is how long we've been waiting for Howard. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> wow, you want to talk about a captive audience? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know what's funny is Leslie Iwerks told me that she was on the last Disney cruise before the quarantine. And she was showing the first episode of the Imagineering story. And she did a chat and kind of a PowerPoint mm-hmm. afterwards. And mm-hmm. she said, because they were stuck on the boat so long, they did mm-hmm. every single episode. <laughs> They did a Q&A for every single episode on the ship, the last ship before the quarantine. And so how funny is that? That is a really captive audience. (laughs) Oh, man. Somebody had to have seen those. Somebody's got notes because she was able to put together a six episode long documentary and, and you and i both remember when they initially teased this at d23 and it was just, it was going to be a documentary it was going to be two hours long yeah so i would love to hear what she talked about what she talked about that didn't make the six episode yeah you know yeah oh, oh you're killing me yeah okay but but anyway all right so we've been waiting Jeez, now it's it's all three years yeah three years to see this but to be fair there was some lag time between when don's first documentary you know waking sleeping beauty debuted at telluride that was in back in september of 2009 and then it had a limited theatrical release in in march of 2010 yeah but that was only six months not 36 months (laughs) is this more about 
what's happening in distribution than say the quality of the film that you know there's yeah. just fewer and fewer venues for these sorts of things or yeah and i think that obviously howard is about howard ashman and you know that is a, he's a, an incredible figure in disney mm-hmm. animation but maybe it was like too niche for an outside company or didn't he have a Sherman Brothers thing on PBS that that also sort of didn't get wide release? So I think he didn't probably didn't want to do that route either. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm so happy that it's going to be on Disney Plus because it's going to have the widest possible audience. I don't know. And, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I'm I'm honestly hoping that given the way Disney Plus works, that typically when you watch something, afterwards you get that message because you watch this, you should watch this. You know, and that I'm I'm kind of hoping. That it directs people to Waking Sleeping Beauty, which is also a, a great documentary. Oh, it's wonderful. I've watched yeah. it so many times. And also, okay. you know, there's other great documentaries. Walton El Grupo is on there, and mm-hmm. The Boys, I think, is on there now, and Frank and Ollie. Yep. So mm-hmm. there are great documentaries on Disney Plus. It's sort of like the kind of the hidden feature of Disney Plus is just how good the documentaries are. And obviously into the unknown and um, Imagineering story and the Mandalorian thing. It's just Uh so cool that they've invested so heavily in it. Right. They've done some great stuff. Now, now (laughs) speaking, however, of Disney films or or more to the effect of what's not on, on, (laughs) on Disney Plus. Can you talk a little bit about how you've spent your past week? Uh, oh, yes, I, I really Jim. want people to chase down this story. Yes, this article will be out. So Jim, Jim, I feel like his eyebrow was raised and he said, son, you haven't been posting a lot this week, which is true. I mean, I did, I've done a bunch of news I'm stories. I'm spoiled. I, you know, previous <laughs> weeks, it's like, you know, four giant Drew I Taylor know. special articles. And it was I like, know. where is my, my chunk of red raw meat? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I spent all week... Uh, working on a, a piece about Disney's scariest movies. Mm-hmm. So it took a lot because I read, you know, J- Jim knows this, that every time I do one of these articles, I rewatch every movie that I'm talking about so that I'm, I make sure that I'm fresh. And so I watched, you know, Black Cauldron, which is on Disney plus, but mm-hmm. I also watched things like something wicked this way comes and watcher in the woods, which boy, talk about a movie. I looked up that, that alternate ending is on the DVD Jim. Whoo boy. Yeah. That creature really sucks. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yes, it did. <laughs> you know, I, you know, and, and in fact, that, that that's I have such sympathy for you because it's like, the, first of all, you sat and watched the Black Cauldron again, which which again, Collider should have given you combat pay for. Oh my god, what is that? What is that scene where they're just firing at targets outside of the ship for what seems like forty five minutes? <sighs> my god if you go through you know on the black hole if you you go through all of the disney annual reports prior to the release of the film it looks like the most amazing film there there are these these incredible concept paintings and models and it's just, and it's one of these things where they clearly put a thought a lot of thought into how it looked and you know the design and it's just sort of like Oh yeah, a script. Yeah, we really should have had a script. Who forgot to write the script? Also, the the least diverse cast you will ever see in oh, your life. Good oh, lord. Yeah. And uh, on the other hand, the Black Cauldron. The fact that you're talking about the get it writing about the scariest Disney film ever, and it's like all the scary stuff got cut out. In fact, 
if you go online, the, the folks who were selling the cells that were made for the scenes that got cut out of the film, right. and they are so gruesome. I mean, bodies that are are melting and you yeah. know, oozing with pus and, and you know, this sort of thing. And it's sort of like, yeah, Yeah. And that's nowhere in the movie. So how do you allude to the fact, well, this used to be scary? Yeah, although it, it is a pretty unending series of horrors between, mm-hmm. you know, the dragons going after the pig mm-hmm. and, you know, there's like implied torture and the Horn King is so weird, but... Milk Call's original version of the Horn King was way cooler, where he was sort of like it was like painted white. It look he looks like one of those like Swedish like death metal you know rockers. He he's so cool. But I also rewatched Dragon Slayer, which was pretty fun. Uh, that was actually the do- Michael Eisner's door into Disney. I mean, that's the one where if you look at the, the credits, it's a co-production yeah. between Paramount and Disney. In fact, they were the, the two films that were made under that deal, uh, one was Robert Altman's Popeye, and the other one was Dragon Slayer, which the big deal for the effects was this was kind of a showcase for... Remember, ILM, you know, talked would talk about go motion. You yeah, know, the idea yeah. was it was stop motion, but they deliberately move whatever they were moving as they shot it, so they'd get that motion blur yeah. that you know you just don't see in the Ray Harryhausen stuff. This far after the fact, how was Dragon Slayer? Did you enjoy it's it? It's good. Or? I mean, and it's it's pretty scary. I don't think the dragon design is as good as people make it out to be. You know, it's like George R. R. Martin says that is his favorite dragon, and it's Guillermo del Toro's favorite dragon. But really, yeah, it's good, and I really like the the whole element. You know, because what's interesting is that the writer director Brian Ro- mm-hmm. or Matthew Robbins was inspired mm-hmm. by Sorcerer's Apprentice to write the movie. And it really feels that way with this kind mm-hmm. of like in over his head, a magician. But yeah, I mean, it, it held up well. And, it, and it's never going to be on Disney Plus because there's a bare breast. I know how scandalous there that is. Go. There you go. And, and the swimming scene with the bare butt. Yes, exactly. But the, there's great stuff like Ian McDermott as mm-hmm. the uh, God-fearing priest and that great shot where he's rising up and the dragon is rising up at the oh. same time so you can't quite see the dragon it's so cool that's right that's right and, and yeah. i have to admit one of my favorite things out of it is when sir ralph richards you know his, his wizard finally comes back yeah and but there's a the wonderful little character beat where he finally comes back and he turns to his assistant do you bring me something to eat <laughs> oh that that real? moment is so wonderful yeah 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 just you know, it's reminded that you've just been resurrected Did you bring me something to eat <laughs> yeah so it's like okay well now and I the great go thing and, and the the animation history of that too is that that was the first ILM non-Lucas ILM movie they ever worked on. That's right. That's right. 1981, I think they started on it. So yeah, there you go. There's your tidbit to bring this back into the podcast. Yeah. Okay. Switching to other things Drew brought to my attention this week. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Cleopatra in space. Doesn't it look cute? I like the trailer. This is over at NBC Universal's Peacock, which officially launched just this past week on July 15th. Though if you're a, you, you're an Xfinity customer, they've been doing the soft launch, so to speak, of the streaming service uh, since April. What's weird about Cleopatra's in space, Drew, that is if you, if you drill down, 
This actually debuted last year, November of last year, in Southeast Asia. Did you know there was a DreamWorks channel? Uh, no. But hmm. I can guess there's enough, you know, TV shows and stuff to fill it. Supposedly, Cleopatra in Space is based on a, a series of graphic novels that Scholastic started uh, back in 2014. It focuses on Cleopatra's teenage years, but she's transported 30,000 years into the future to a planet with Egyptian themes that's ruled by talking cats, which sounds so much like Nancy in my house. <laughs> the showrunner on this thing, Doug Langnell, He's an old Disney hand. I mean, he did animated series Buzz Lightyear, Star Command, Weekenders, Disney's House of Mouths, Dave the Barbarian, which was a really fun show that died too soon, plus Darkwing Duck. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Were you getting any Luxor vibes off of this uh, off of this? <laughs> well, are we was. talking Luxor the Hotel? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, Luxor the Hotel, yes. I have to admit, I did look for where I would leave my luggage. Yes. So, we will be covering the Luxor at some point. We will. We will. We will. You know, we fact, have not gotten off the ground yet, but we will. No. Yes. yes. That, that, and that's not Drew's fault. That's my fault. You know. <laughs> but anyway, beyond that, we were talking about somebody leaving Disney for DreamWorks. Uh, so let's talk about somebody who left Pixar for Universal. So what do you make of this Josh Cooley news, the Little Monsters Project? Well, I'm very excited because you saw who's doing the concept designs for this thing. Yeah, right? Crash McCready. I uh, yeah. McCready. Yeah. Anybody who's ever seen any concept art by Crash over the years. I mean, this guy's the top of the top of the top. Yes. So, you've got Crash, but this is going to make the Universal Monsters all age appropriate? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It, and it was also described as a, as live action and animation, which it feels like this should just be completely animated. I mean, we should go back to the ILM mm -hmm. Frankenstein movie, which we've talked about on the show a number of times, you know, something like that. But I mean, Crash is literally the maybe like the greatest creature designer right now, oh, yeah. you know, Absolutely. between Pirates Absolutely. of the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And then he did all the characters for Rango. I think he was actually credited as his production designer for Rango. But yeah, he's amazing. So I just can't wait to see what that looks like. You're right, Jim. It was probably born out of mm -hmm. a consumer products meeting that said, how mm -hmm. do we make Wolfman plush? Mm -hmm. But <laughs> <laughs> there could be something good that comes out of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. But but at the same time, did you see who's producing this? Todd Lieberman and, and David Hoberman? Isn't Hoberman the one who's working with... Our buddy Josh. Oh, on uh, on Hunchback. I think Hunchback and Shrunk. Okay. It sounds like there's a solid hand guiding this thing. Yes. But didn't Josh already line up a Transformers movie? Yes, he did, and he also he lined up one other movie too. I mean, he has a number of projects in okay. development. But you and I both know. In Hollywood, you have to be working on five things simultaneously because four and a half of those things will fall through. So mm. I give him credit for for um, getting some some fires in the irons in the fire because he also you know just got an agent and I'm sure he's being shopped around and stuff. So okay. but I appreciate Josh's hustle. Um, okay. Well, yeah. It'll, you know how I feel about Toy Story Four, Jim. You know how I feel. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. We've had that conversation. <laughs> Uh, now, speaking of, of Pixar-related stuff, this coming Saturday, 
July 25th at two o'clock. You want to be in a Zoom conference that the folks at Gallery Nucleus are setting up. This is going to be their panel for The Art of Pixar, that wonderful book that we've hyped. (laughs) We've mentioned a a couple of times on the show. A couple of times here on this show. But I feel bad for the whole onward thing. I think that, in fact, I was just talking about on I Want That, how just this, a week ago today, Nancy and I were in the Disney store at our local outlet mall. First time we've been there since the thing closed. In fact, it just reopened like four days beforehand. And the first thing you see when you walk in the store is the Onward display, which still is hyping the March 6th release. (laughs) And it just, it kind of kills me because it just, this film was thrown into a, Eclipse, and it has such a such a wonderful ending, and such a great message. And I love that you're going to get the chance to put this thing back in the spotlight. So it's all right. So again, this is two o'clock on July 25th, but that's LA time, folks. Want to point out, and this is being set up by the folks at Gallery Nucleus, and it's you and story artist Lee Tang. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And also character designer, visual development artist Maria Yi. And the idea is it's an hour-long presentation, and you're going to take folks through how this, uh, you know, this film was developed. You're going to take questions, so you know you could can reach out to to Drew, you can yes. reach out to you know Maria and Lee, and also you're going to have the opportunity to get uh, an autographed copy of The Art of Onward. And I have to tell you, I, as I mentioned to Drew earlier this week, I, I have already purchased my copy <laughs> of Onward with the intention that at some point in the future, Drew and I would be in the same room and he would yes. autograph it. I, <laughs> I've given, given on a hope on that ever happening now, folks. You know, thanks, <laughs> thanks to COVID. So I actually mailed my copy off to my daughter, Alice, and ordered a brand new copy through the folks at Gallery Nucleus because I'm guaranteed to get uh, a book plate that's autographed by Drew and Maria and Lee. So at least I'll get his signature on this damn thing. Yes, the books are are sort of slowly making their way around right now, you know, and so, uh, but it'll be great. It is worth it alone, this book. There's that two-page spread in this thing that I love where it goes through... Yeah, remember how in uh, Into the Unknown they talk about the the work in progress screenings yes. they do, and then they how to break down the film, and yeah. you know, three months later they do it again. There is this two page spread of the production chart that takes you through the eight different visions of the movie. Yeah, you see, you see characters come and go, and you know the Jenny character is. I'm sure we'll talk about her during the the thing, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's really amazing. I love that they included that. I, when I saw that too, I was like, "Oh, this is really great." I mean, it wasn't the whole chart wasn't filled out when I saw it because mm-hmm. there were many months left to go on it, and yeah. at least I think one more screening. But you know, it, it was also nice because it was locked. I think early because the whole team went to go work on Soul from um. onward, so uh, all hands on deck for that one. But yeah, it's going to be really fun, and I'm I'm working. I'm going to be more as as the master of ceremonies. Um, so I'm I'm excited to get to talk to to Lee and Maria too about all this because, uh, you know, I love the movie. I, I'm going to watch the movie again beforehand, probably. So you know, it's it's going to be fun. I promise. That's July 25th, two o'clock. 
LA time. Uh, mind you, you do have to buy a $5 ticket to get into the, the Zoom presentation, but honestly, it'll be money well spent. And at the very least, you get to harangue Drew in real yes, time. So, yes. you know, you know that, that wonderful entertainment value right there. So, <laughs> all right. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a quick break here, folks. And then when we get back, we're going to talk about a podcast that Drew just recently discovered. You know, folks, we want you to listen to the most recent episode of Light Diffuse, especially with, with the wonderful interview that, that Drew just did with Gary Reitstrom, which has all of that killer information about Newt, the canceled Pixar project. But at the same time, there are other good podcasts out there. And in fact, Drew, you, you just stumbled onto one recently, what, what Meet Your Maker? Yeah, it's it's it seems to be a podcast about kind of like Irish industry, but you know it's really cool because this episode is all about the Don Blue Studios and how they moved mm -hmm. to Ireland, and it is just crazy. It's so great, and they interview him and uh, his partner Sullivan. Right? Is that the guy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of animators that were there, and well, Jim, you you tell the story briefly. Tell the story about what happened. Don leaves Disney in, I want to say, September of 79, because a former Disney exec basically comes at Don and says, look, there is an appetite out there for animated films that, frankly, Disney isn't meeting. You know, they're doing a brand new film once every three and a half to four years. Right. And, you know, frankly, yeah, they're re-releasing their old library titles, but, you know, there's so much more potential. And so somebody were to step into the space, they could really make a lot of money. Wasn't he also in the doghouse because of that, the banjo, the alley cat or whatever that short was that the, he had made while at Disney? Dick didn't like that or something? It was kind of one of the inciting events. The notion was they were doing this project outside. It was actually kind of an educational project. He was upset about the fact that, you know, you could go into the library and you could see, you know, films like Bambi, which did, you know, amazing things with water or do on spider webs or that sort of thing. And, you know, here was Disney struggling with like Fox and the Hound to do. Again, it's, you know, they're back in Bambi country. They're back in, in, you know, in the woods and just the, you know, the water effects and, you know, things like doing ripples in water were now beyond, you know, the ability of the animators. In fact, the kind of a, a famous story about Wooly Reitherman going through the room. They had, you know, all the storyboards up and Wooly literally walked through the room and f would fold down story drawings to the effect of, well, we don't have a guy who can do that anymore. Or we don't have a guy who can do this anymore. We wow. Don't. was pulling moments out of the movie because it's like, that's beyond our skill level at this point. In fact, that was one of the reasons that Wooly got forced off of the film as the director, because that so infuriated a lot of the animators who worked at the studio that this guy's holding us back. There was the equivalent of a, an insurrection. And then, you know, at that point, it's like, you know, well, maybe it's time for you to retire. But anyway, Don ends up leaving Disney in 79, takes a quarter of the animators, uh, again, the quarter of the young, newly trained animators with right. him. And, but that was only like 15 people or something, right? <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, that's the thing. That gives you some idea of how small <laughs> Disney had let the operation, how he, they'd let it wither at that point. Uh, he goes off to make Secret of Nim, which comes out in 82. 
I personally think is an amazing film. Me too. Between the color, what they tried to do. I mean, it's clearly an animated film made by somebody who has studied the work of George Lucas, who has studied the, the work of Steven Spielberg, who's making an animated film for a modern audience. And in right. fact, Secret of Nim doesn't make any money. It comes out during an incredibly tough summer. The summer of 82 was the, the was a bloodbath. Yeah. 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 There were so many films that, that came out that, that was, year. That was Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the Thing. E.T. Yeah, uh, yeah. What else? Yeah. Just every big movie. Anything that came out that the year was literally fighting for screens, fighting for attention, fighting for oxygen, and it, it didn't happen with Secret Doom. But the interesting thing is a year or so later, Steven Spielberg finally got around to seeing the movie and contacted Don personally. And it's like, wow, I love that. That was amazing. And uh, by the way, I have an idea for an animated feature. Would you like to talk with me? And that's where we got American Tale in 86. Now, in this same period of time, though, Michael Eisner comes on board as the new head of the Walt Disney Company in the fall of 84. His job is you have to turn Disney animation around because it's making these movies, toothless movies like Fox and the Hound. But on the other hand, if you look at American Tale today... It's it's also kind of not a great piece of art. It doesn't necessarily hold up. There's a wonderful real parallel between, say, American Tale and Disney's Oliver and Company in that these are both films that are educating executives about animation. I mean, Jeffrey Katzenberg learned about the animation process from working on Oliver and Company, and in turn, Steven Spielberg learned about animation from working on uh, American Tale. And the very thing I think they, they probably address in the podcast is people were realizing, dear Lord, how expensive it is to actually do animation in the States. And they began looking for, you know, the equivalent of tax havens. Yes. Places that would be that much easier or that much more cost effective. And and that's the deal with uh, Blue Sullivan Studios. It, Ireland basically offered them to invest in the studio, didn't they? Yeah, it was the largest non-industrial mm-hmm. uh, investment in a private mm-hmm. company that the country had ever made. Which is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell your Dean Dubois story now? Oh, yeah. So I talked to Dean last year about uh, How to Train Your Dragon 3, and Mm -hmm. he started off in Don Bluth. And I said, well, what what was that situation like? And he said, I was in Dublin uh, with that studio. And he said, what I learned was that the amount of technical craftsmanship that you can wring out of an animated movie could be unparalleled. But if Mm -hmm. you don't have a compelling story, Mm -hmm. none of it means anything. And I Mm -hmm. worked on movies that were beautiful and had amazing animation and just flopped because Mm -hmm. nobody cared about the characters and nobody cared about the story. And it was a really important lesson for me that I've taken and uh, have used moving forward. So I was just amazed by that. It brings to mind two of the films that were actually worked on in Ireland at Sullivan Blue Studios. And both of these films come out in 1994. We're talking about Thumbelina and A Troll in Central Park. And we were just talking about how tough it was to put a, a film out in the summer of 82. Imagine you're bringing not one, but two animated features to the marketplace in the year that Disney's The Lion King comes out and basically blots out the sun. 
And the thing is, if you, you watch Thumbelina and Troll at Central Park today, these two films have, they're among the first times that people have figured out how to do CG and hand-drawn side-by-side in such a way that it's seamless. There's a, a sailboat scene in a Troll in Central Park, where a sailboat is basically f- flying through the sky. But again, it's it's also animated to a song that's sung by Dom DeLuise, which, of course, you know, they're, they're, everybody loves Why songs. Why was Dom DeLuise in every one of those freaking movies, Jim? Don Bluth fell in love with Dom DeLuise back on The Secret of Nim, because remember, he played the crow Jeremy. That's right. And Don knew that if you got Dom DeLuise in a, a recording booth, you'd write three jokes, and he'd give you four. You know, he, right. he would find a way, in a weird sort of way, Dom would hold open doors for Don. I mean, for example, the the way that Don got Burt Reynolds to voice the lead character in, you know, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Don got him not only Burt, but also got him the wife Lonnie. Lonnie Anderson is in that. Yeah, you know, I remember her, sure. It always felt like those movies, especially as a kid at that time, they felt, they always felt like, the like direct to BJ's kind of like knockoffs that you would mm. see so much. And even if you look at Thumbelina, it came out in 94. Lion mm. King has Elton John. Thumbelina yeah. has Barry Manilow. It's sort of like the kind of off, you know, bad Xerox version. It's just, it, it's sad too, because those initial movies I think are really great. Land Before Time and All Bugs Go to Heaven and Secret of Nam, but. Remember, I should come through the door in 84. They're trying to find a project that signals to the world that, you know, Disney is back. And Disney has been trying to get Who Framed Roger Rabbit off the ground. Eisner reaches out to Spielberg with this project. I guess Disney had approached Robert Zemeckis. And Zemeckis, you know, loved the script, but it's like, just no way they'll be able to make this movie. But, you know, Eisner reaches out to Spielberg, who then reaches out to Zemeckis. And Spielberg and Zemeckis together decide that Disney can't do this film. The animators at Disney are just not up to this. So they then secretly meet with Don Bluth and offer him Roger Rabbit. And Don says yes. So Robert and Steven go back to Disney and, hey, we found the guy to do the animation and it's Don Bluth. And the entire management at Disney has changed out. You know, we've got Frank Wells, Eisner, you know, and and Katzenberg there. But middle management is, is still old Disney pros. And there's still a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness about Don Bluth walking out the door in September of 79 and taking all the quarter of the animation stuff with him. And it just, the deal that Zemeckis and Spielberg set up with Bluth stopped dead there. It's like, no, there is no way Disney is making a film with Don Bluth. You have to find somebody else, which is how Richard Williams ends up as, you know, he was actually the second choice, you know, the, wow. the second guy. So back to uh, Meet Your Maker. Any other, you know, I mean, obviously this is something folks are going to have to chase down and listen to for themselves, but yeah. any other stories kind of leaped out at you? Or Well, I think it's fascinating because they interview a lot of the Irish uh, animators that were there and then went with the company when it... W- so what happened was in a, in a frantic search for capital that mm-hmm. Bluth uh, Studios got some outside um, funding towards the end of their kind of run. And it ended up that that company that was providing them with the funding was bought by Fox. 
And then uh, they said, okay, well, now we own this company. And what was really frustrating for Fox at the time was they had a distribution deal with Warner Brothers. So they were paying, they said for every dollar, uh, Warner Brothers was giving getting 75 cents of it, basically. Uh, and Fox would get the other quarter. So that is when they decided, okay, we've got to like, you know, get rid of this and start a new studio, which was, mm-hmm. which was called Fox Animation, which right. was set up by Bill Mechanic, mm-hmm. who again mm-hmm. was a Disney executive at the time of the Eisner, uh, Katzenberg right. era, right? Yeah. He was the, the mastermind between Disney's amazing home, um, video yes. arm. Yes. He was the one that put Pinocchio on video, I think for $79 initially, right? And it didn't sell that many. And they were like, Mm -hmm. let's try it again. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. That's right. 39. Okay. That's the price point. That's that's Bill. So anyway, they set up this new one. So what's interesting is you hear the the Irish animators talking about this this American studio coming to Ireland. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about them all bitching about going to Arizona. Mm. which is where this new studio was and how that talk about a culture shock. It was just crazy. But what I didn't realize was that many Mm -hmm. of the Irish animation studios that are doing such amazing work right now, including Toon Saloon Mm -hmm. uh, or Cartoon Saloon were ex Bluth animators that they had a lasting impact there. The very thing that Dean was talking about. I mean, look, they learned from the best. They learned, okay, at least when it came to animation. I mean, you know, you, you look at like, you know, all dogs go to heaven. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible story, but it's got amazing animation. These guys were schooled properly in, in how to animate. It was just a question of getting them in with folks who did great stories. And, and once you paired that, you know, it all took off. But but God, the stories from that period about where, you know, I mean, l- literally when they, it was like the last helicopter out of Nam when they took Gary Goldman and Don Bluth and, and the like. Oh, Arizona. that was a great story that the guy in charge of the studio, yeah. when they were going, initially going to Ireland, all these animators from Burbank were like, um, you know, I have a wife and kids and a car. <laughs> Yep. And they and apparently the line they gave them was, if your parents could get over here from the old world, you can get on a plane and go to Dublin. And so that was apparently it. And, and you know, I'm sure that they did not have a great time. But, but apparently many of them, when they went over there, stayed on Gary Goldman's couch because he had a really nice house, I guess, sort of in the center of town, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Don Bluth lived near um, Trinity College, which is, you know, mm-hmm. right in the middle of the action in Dublin. But, yeah, I thought that was a funny anecdote for you, Jim. I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> wow. You know, but but can, 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 I, can I prompt you on something? Can you, can you talk about the Dracula movie? Yeah. Well, the, the, see, now that's, that's the part that I find fascinating because Fox sets up its animation studio and and they want to go head to head with Disney. So the first thing out of the gate is kind of their Disney princess movie, which, you know, is Anastasia. But the second film was supposed to be yet another musical, but this one was going to be dark and noir and slightly more adult. And the the idea that it was going to be an, an animated version of Dracula. And, you know, evidently, you know, that there were all these amazing boards and wonderful production designs, but 
when Anastasia came out in November of 1997, Disney did everything they could to cripple that movie. Do you remember how, for example, what was it? Little Mermaid was released to theaters for like only three weeks. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But just coincidentally, you know, like the week before Anastasia came out and then right behind that was the Robin Williams flubber. But, you know, it just, they had deliberately picked, they'd done a pincer maneuver where, you know, the effect of, you know, we have these two high profile Disney projects and a Little Mermaid back in theaters for the first time since, you know, it came out in 89 or thereabouts. And your only chance to see it because it's only in theaters for three weeks. And coincidentally, it's the first, you know, the overlap is the first 10 days that Anastasia's out there and needs to make its big box office. And then here comes Robin Williams' flubber. That really kind of concerned the folks at Fox. And so the notion, okay, you you want to do another musical right behind this. Yeah. Uh, okay. And it's it's built around Dracula. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, tell us where the audience is for an animated Dracula. And in the end, um, that's why, how we got Titan IE. That, you know, Fox basically turned to Bluth and said, look, nothing personal. I, you know, your Dracula idea, okay, it's solid. I'm sure people will turn up for that eventually. But do us a favor. Let's do a more commercial film before we do Dracula. And we have this sci-fi story that we've developed that we think will lend itself well for animation. And when was the last time you saw Titan IE? I, I was thinking about that. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe uh, in the theater in the year 2000. I'm looking at the reviews right now, and they, they it, it didn't do terribly critically. No. And, and by the way, was, I, I keep yeah. saying the name wrong. It's a, I'm, I'm pulling a, a Disney Springs Disney Plus. It's Titan AE as in After Earth. After uh, Earth, yes. Not yeah. Titan IE as in, you know, please reference the document to the side here. But yeah, you know, just, for me, what always struck me as odd about Titan AE is like, do you remember that Nathan Lane is the voice of one of the villains? You know, at the point you're casting Nathan Lane as the voice of a villain, you really haven't, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, you know, Angels in America, he did an amazing Roy Kong, a cone, but Nathan is an animated character, does not a villain make, so. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Should I rewatch it? I don't know. Are, are you going to be taking heavy medication anytime <laughs> soon? <laughs> so, it's the only way to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm sort of interested. I want to tell you, Jim, to hold on to that Art of Don Bluth book, by the way, because mm-hmm. um, going price on Amazon right now for a used copy is a cool $970. So, yeah, that's, I, you know, and, and, but the fascinating part, if you Google Kataru, that's C-A-T-A-R-O-O, John Colley, the author of the, the animated films of Don Bluth, has actually basically put up every individual chapter from that book available online for free. That's so great. All of those stories, you know, for example, you know, the, the, the talk about, you know, going after Don Bluth to do, you know, be the director of animation, Roger Rabbit, are right there. So go check those out. Okay, I'm going to do it. And speaking of things you should definitely check out, let's talk about Light the Fuse. So, all right. So we, we just talked about the Gary Rydstrom episodes. Those yes. have wrapped at this point, right? Yeah. So you have to listen to them, Jim. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll talk. We'll, we'll if Jim, Jim has seven days to listen to (laughs) 
one ep- one podcast episode. Hopefully he can do that. Maybe we'll talk about it on the next episode and what he reveals about Newt and also what he reveals about Wally. So there's some okay. interesting things there. But yeah, we have a lot of great guests coming up. You know, I'm just very tired all the time, Jim. You understand this. You have 19 podcasts going on at all all hours of the day. A solid week of watching the scariest Disney films. You know, oh, oh. oh, and I did have a, a big article out this week, Jim, that you didn't. Maybe you just didn't see. I ranked every what? Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I did. Again, in fact, I was going to once again take issue with you. Um, yes, go ahead. All right. So let's see. You went with. Pirates 3 as uh, At World's End is the best one, right? Yes. I just think there's just so much in that. I mean, it's a lot of movie. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But I just love I love how, how over-the-top Gore Verbinski it all is. So mm-hmm. that is my choice. And I love that final fight between the ships. I think it's just amazing. It is. You know, and in fact, I, I love that you cited the – it's not Norrington. What is the name of oh, the um, – Oh, uh, Tom Hollander's character. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That that is great. The, him, him walking in slow motion down the down, yeah, and so his hand cool. on the banister as it's exploding. You know, yes. basically just. I, I have Beckett, to admit, you, know, you pick the right stuff, but at the same time, <laughs> I, you know, the discovery of the first film. I mean, uh, every time we went back to the world. It wasn't necessarily that sort of Shrek situation where it was a, it became a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. Right. I actually have to circle back on Dead Men Tell No Tales. That one actually played better when I when I rewatched it. And the fourth one, I think, is just a total wash. That movie is just awful. But my mm. poor wife would come out of the bedroom and or you know where she was working and just say, "Why are you still watching these movies?" It's just three days straight. You talk about how that is supposedly the most expensive film in the series. What, with a price tag of $300 million? I think it was like, um, yeah, I think it was 300 after tax credits. I think it was 400 all said and done. See, now the problem is I remember the stories when that was in production, how they actually cut stuff out to bring the, um, the price down. Like, for example, the whole scene in London, the original conceit was that it was set in winter. You know, we're going to get to see Jack Sparrow, who's always in this tropical climate and always looks like he's overheated, you know, in London in the middle of winter. And in fact, that supposedly they cut out this elaborate chase on the frozen Thames during an ice festival. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and it, but it was just the notion of we cut all of this stuff out to save money. And so it still wound up costing $300 million. Yeah. I just... I don't get that. Wow. Listen, you don't um, get a Judy Dench cameo for free, Jim Zongren. <laughs> tell me there wasn't an Artemis Fowl make good in there somewhere. All right. We paid you this much. You have to show up for Artemis Fowl. So, all right. And well, anyway, okay. Now, speaking of other podcasts you might want to listen to, we've got Disney Dish with Luntesto. We've got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. We have Marvel Us Disney with Aaron Adams. Likewise, the looking at Lucasfilm with your good, close, personal friend, Drew Danzy. Uh, uh, close, <laughs> close, personal friend, mortal enemy, Jim. The, the terms are so interchangeable. Yeah. There we go. Okay. And, uh, and again, pleased to report that just this past Saturday, uh, we finally posted a brand new I Want That. Can I give you a topic for the next I Want That? Absolutely. Okay. This stupid merchandise from Grand uh, Floridian mm-hmm. that has Beauty and the Beast all over it. 
Oh, isn't that tied to the library, the bar there? The, yes. The bar that's no they longer open? They literally are like changing the logo of the Grand Floridian on merchandise to be a silhouette from Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Sucks! Okay. Yeah, that's all well, I have to say about that. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, there, there's lots of guys from the NBA right now that are looking for things to do, so they're probably going down and buying that. So, <laughs> all right, uh, tell you what, folks, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only uh, fine tuning but also uh, put in a good word for light the fuse, uh, we'd really appreciate that. Uh, likewise, if you really, really, really like what you heard here today, head over to Bandcamp and subscribe. Again, remind me, where can we find you on, on Twitter and Instagram? Uh, Drew Tailored, like a tailored suit. Uh, on Instagram, if you like pictures of 80s malls and also my dog, please check out my, my Instagram account. It's good. It's Nova the Wonder Dog. Yes. Yes. You know, yes. Just love her. Um, well, I'll, and, and likewise, Nancy wants me to remind you that if you want to find us, you head over to Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we're there as Jim Hill Media. And over on Facebook, uh, it's Jim Hill Media News for some reason. Um, anyway, I guess for now, uh, that will do it. I, I have my homework for Mr. Taylor. I have to go listen to the Gary Rydstrom episode of Light yes, the Fuse. Yes, yes. Uh, likewise, by the hopeful, in fact, we'll have to wait to record till after Drew's presentation with the Gallery Nucleus folks on July 25th at 2 o'clock Pacific time. Uh, but I'll be fascinated to hear what stories you have to share about that. So, uh, and I guess for now, uh, that'll do it. So thanks for listening, folks.